can subscribe and get early access to these shows by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the subscribe at Substack button. Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett here, looking for the ugly truth uh, hidden underneath the festering piles of lies. And uh, the lies just keep on (laughs) festering, getting worse all the time. Uh, from 9-11 and the 9-11 wars to COVID uh, to the current Ukraine situation, it's gotten to the point that the mainstream media is uh, almost a parody of itself. I mean, infinitely worse than it was back during the Battle of Cold War days that I grew up in. I don't know what to compare it to. So now I have to bring on independent experts who actually know what they're talking about to dissect the situation and tell us what's really going on. And one of those is today's guest, Larry Johnson. Larry has a background in military, uh, special ops, uh, and strategic analysis and stuff like that. He's got the Son of American Revolution, a Son of the New American Revolution blog, or sonar21.com. It's one of the best go-to sources for uh, off-NATO script reporting on the Ukraine situation. So, hey, welcome, Larry. It's good to have you. Hey, thank you. Good to be with you. Okay, so let's let's start just quickly. Get your background. Uh, maybe you know you obviously uh, seem seem to uh, know what you're talking about. Have a certain amount of uh, military and strategic analysis background. So where where did you get that? And then how did you come around to these uh, off propaganda script views? I uh, started working with the Central Intelligence Agency in 1985. I was there until 1989. Moved from there to the U.S. Department of State's Office of Counterterrorism. I was there for four years and then uh, moved off and began doing consulting in 19, end of 1993 into 94. And I worked for 24 years with the U.S. Military Special Operations Forces. So I've had uh, one, one of sort of the unique insights I've had is being able to integrate uh, CIA, State Department, FBI, and the rest of the intelligence community with military operations and capabilities. So, Very interesting background. That's actually kind of similar to the background of my friend, uh, Veterans Today editor Gordon Duff, who's uh, certainly an interesting character who's been on the show quite a few times. And uh, so uh, you, Gordon... Um, saw that there were some problems with the uh, official story of everything in the mainstream, I guess, from the moment he went to Vietnam as a Marine and saw that what was happening in Vietnam right. didn't match the patriotic story. And it just kind of got worse from there, apparently, for him, uh, culminating after 9-11 with that uh, obvious big lie and, and the controlled demolition of the Trade Center, uh, pissing him off enough that he would eventually start Veterans Today. Uh, well, what was your trajectory that, that led you to your uh, your views? Well, I just I just try to assess information. I mean, it's got it's got to add up. Uh, and if uh, um, you know, but we, we've seen enough lies over the years from the government that I realize you can never take them at face value at the start. So, mm-hmm. um, particularly with this uh, with the Ukraine situation. Um, the, the, when, you, when you step back and look at it objectively, recognizing that uh, of uh, that Ukraine spends more money on lobbying in the in Washington D.C. than than does Saudi Arabia. Now that doesn't compute. Uh, or if you 
consider that uh, of all the countries in the world, the number one donor to the Clinton Foundation is Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine is not this, you know, wealthy principality. So that just doesn't add up. The political, the political influence is going on there. And then just watching how the U.S. media just so completely misrepresents or lies about the history of what's been going on in Ukraine. And, you know, the, the attacking people and using ad hominem is usually the, you know, when you don't have facts to stand behind, that's what they go to. And so, you know, Putin's like Hitler. Well, so Donald Trump is like Hitler and George W. Bush is like Hitler and uh, Muammar Gaddafi is like Hitler. It's, you know. And hey, don't forget Saddam. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. So, um, you know, just I've been uh, I'm a healthy skeptic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can I can see how your background would probably contribute to that. Do you think the propaganda has gotten worse post Cold War during the Cold War? I, I remember my political awakening uh, initially was a seventh grade John Birch Society film strip shown in social studies class. And. Uh, at the time, little I realized that actually the Birchers were onto something to a certain extent. At the time, though, I just saw how outrageously one-sided this anti-communist propaganda was. Right. Then I looked into the Vietnam situation and realized, you know, what a fraud and a war crime that was. And then a couple of years later, I saw Mark Lane give a talk on the JFK assassination, and sh- he sh- showed the Zapruder film. This is when they first got hold of it, and that boggled my uh, what fifteen, sixteen-year-old mind enough that I've never really been believing uh, official stories uh, ever since. But the Cold War propaganda seemed like there was a sort of a kernel of truth to it in that, for example, NATO was to some extent genuinely a defensive alliance. It was concerned about a possible Soviet invasion of Western Europe, whereas post-Cold War, it seems that NATO has morphed and become uh, purely a tool of wars of aggression and that they're indeed targeting Russia. and yet the propaganda is kind of even more shrill and one-sided than back during the Cold War than there really w- when there really was an enemy to watch out for. Would you yeah. agree with that? Yeah, well, they've, yeah, we, we've actually reversed roles. Um, when, when the Soviet Union was an entity, uh, Pravda, it was ironically named, Pravda in Russian is truth. And it was anything but true. And it, it was sort of the precursor for Baghdad Bob denying that there are U.S. tanks in Baghdad when you can see the pictures in the background. And so the Russians used to be very clumsy at their information management, let's call it. Um, but now we've, uh, I've lived long enough now to see a complete reversal of roles. If you watch, uh, like Russia today, Russia Today is a far more honest presentation of news than anything that the West is offering. The West is just, it comes with a heavily laden agenda. And that agenda is uh, to, to support a particular narrative. So, uh, you know, nobody wants to point out that the United States with the United, with the Great Britain, the United Kingdom in 2014 was involved with helping manufacture a coup that removed an elected president in Ukraine from office and then installed somebody who was seen as more pliant uh, with the West. Uh, and then on top of it, it's n- no great coincidence that at the same time 
that the United States is forcing out this pro-Russian president that uh, Hunter Biden nails a $80,000 a month gig with Burisma and that Joe Biden himself is put in charge of uh, policy in Ukraine. I mean, it's just it's a level of corruption that we always used to laugh at foreigners for doing. And yet the United States has become far more blatant and far more corrupt, frankly, than some of the third world despots we used to uh, ridicule. I agree completely. And it's ironic, isn't it, that in the mainstream we hear all about the Russian oligarchs and the incredible corruption in Russia, <clears throat> when the reality seems to be almost the opposite, that the U.S. oligarchy has gotten uh, corrupt to that point, and the Ukrainian oligarchy, of course, is even worse, whereas Putin has actually sort of whipped his oligarchs into line, gotten them under control to a certain extent, you know, jailed a couple and threatened the others told them to play ball, stay out of politics, let the state seize the oil works and use the oil money for the Russian people. And, of course, that was not what the Western oligarchs wanted. They wanted to ex extend their neoliberal oligarchy across the planet, especially into Russia, so they could get their mitts on all those Russian raw materials and energy. It seems to me that's really the bottom line here and that this is ultimately kind of a, a Western oligarchy's war against Russia, uh, so it's, it's, the corrupt oligarchs are actually on our side, but nobody seems to recognize that. Yeah, and, and, the, and with that, it's actually sort of uh, ironic that we're now punishing Russian oligarchs, and Putin is quite happy with that. It yeah. saves him having to do it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you know, it, it is, um, but the, the, the real craziness though is just the virulent anti-Russia uh, attitude and, and language and propaganda that has flooded Western airwaves and, and print media. Uh, it is just, it, it's over the top. It's, you know, really unjustifiable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes you wonder what was the point of, of winning the Cold War and having Russia renounce communism and actually decide to become a normal country defending its own interests rather than you know, having this messianic millenarian ideology that they're going to try to push on the whole world, it seems like we could have had peace with Russia quite easily just by respecting the promise not to push NATO one inch eastward. And uh, I, I guess the unipolar moment led you know, people like Wolfowitz with his Wolfowitz doctrine to say, hey, let's we're running the world now. Let's run it forever. And to do that, we're going to have to just keep going after anybody that could possibly you know, build up enough strength to think that they're actually uh, autonomous and independent and sovereign. And so the Russians now are declaring themselves sovereign. And apparently that's really why they're under attack. Well, just uh, again, I, I emphasize facts and being objective. Uh, so if you look over the last 30 years, the, the country that has carried out more invasions, actual military invasions, where you put military troops on the ground and you kill the, the natives of that particular country, well, th that country is the United States. There's no other country in the world that has conducted more invasions of foreign countries. Now, we always claim that we have a really good reason for it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie with Jamie Lee Curtis, where he says, have you killed anyone? He says, yeah, but they're bad people. They always deserved it. Well, that's been sort of our rationalization for these these wars that really, it, it, when you look at them objectively, 
they appear to be nothing more than jobs programs for uh, major defense industries and uh, the consulting firms that uh, helps keep them alive. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's now absurd. No matter what happens, it's like that. Uh, remember, I don't know if you ever saw the Saturday Night Live skit with John Voight where uh, he kept uh, hollering for more cowboy and more cowbell. You know, no matter what happens, more cowbell. No matter what happens, we need more defense spending. No matter what happens. And yet, to sit back and objectively look at what the United States, the mess it's created, I, we fought a war for 20 years in Afghanistan. And it, 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 all we did was, you know, burn up a bunch of ammunition and get, a, you know, get uh, probably 20,000 troops maimed and wounded and, and, uh, and a number of others killed. Uh, but not to mention the number of Afghans uh, citizens that we that we murdered. So, you know, what have we accomplished there? In Iraq, same thing. Syria, same thing. Libya. So start down the list. It is, uh, it's it's a long and bloody list. And I guess if anybody believes in something like divine retribution, America has a pretty you know pretty expensive butcher's bill to pl- to pay, in my view. Yeah, that's that's true. It's it's kind of a, a, a frightening thought, uh, especially as we're you know in this era now where the Russians seem to have a couple of years of a lead on the U.S. in the hypersonic weapons. That leads us into the sort of military analysis department, which you excel in. Uh, do you think that uh, the Russians chose this moment to sort of accelerate their pushback against the uh, U.S. war on Russia that initiated in 2014 with that, that coup d'etat, which set off a civil war in Ukraine, which was had kind of Russia cheering for one side and the U.S. supporting the other? So do you think they, they chose this moment because their military has reached the point that they can actually deter the U.S. from moving in and having its way? No, I, actually, I think that they were sort of forced into it uh, with the continued uh, expansion of NATO to the to the east, coupled with the bioweapons labs that were being supported, funded, and, and used for uh, possible preparation of, of um, you know bioweapons against uh, against Russia, and then the fact that the Ukrainians were actually planning to launch. A major military you know, to up their military activity in the Donbas to try to really secure those uh, from the Russians, uh, the, the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, People's Republics that had declared independence from Ukraine. So the combination of those three things is what I think uh, finally compelled uh, Putin to say, "Okay, no, we we can't we can't let this go any longer. We're just going to nip it in the bud." Well, uh, people like uh, Andrei Martyanov uh, and uh, the Saker have argued that the, the Russian military capability is much better than they're generally portrayed in the West. Of course, we keep hearing that the Russians have lost, the Russians are losing, they'll be finished in another week or two. And you uh, you discussed that in your recent blog post, The Dog That Ain't Barking in Ukraine. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe you could give us the rundown on that. Well, the, the, the if what you would expect to see if the Ukrainians functioned as a, an effective army, uh, number one, in the in the east, they would have broken out. They would have actually launched a counterattack against the Russians and pushed the Russians back to the border. Well, that hasn't happened. In fact, the, re- the reports are show steady progress by 
these Russian-backed forces and, and Donetsk and Luhansk and pushing back the Ukrainian uh, military. Uh, you know, that's number one. And, and number two, uh, the Russians have basically, they, they have sealed, completely shut down the southern coast uh, of Ukraine and their access to the Black Sea. Again, if the Ukraine had a viable, capable def- uh, army that could fight against that, they would be launching counterattacks to push the Russians out and to open those ports. They haven't done that. What we're seeing is that this group of neo-Nazis that are in um, Mariupol and in the Avastil, uh, it's the steel plant area uh, of Mariupol, they are just slowly being encircled and, and killed. So this, uh, again, if, if Ukraine had a functioning army, you'd expect to see uh, artillery strikes coming in to try to push back the Russians. We're not seeing that. You'd expect to see airstrikes, some sort of air operation, whether with fixed wing or rotary wing. We're not seeing that. Cruise missiles, we're not seeing that. So it's 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 like... So do they not have it or they just are incapable really of using it in an effective manner? And I think it's the latter because there is absolutely it's irrational for them not to use it uh, if they if it is if it's still viable. Uh, I do know that they've um, their ability to conduct air to air intercept with con- with fixed wing combat aircraft was curtailed the first 24 hours of the war on February 24th because the ground radars were blown up. And those ground radars were what the uh, pilots needed in order to vector themselves in on a target. Uh, I'm told that American AWACS can now substitute for that. But even with the having the AWACS able to offer that capability, we are not seeing those combat aircraft of Ukraine go out and engage the Russians because part of the reason is the Russian air defense system is extremely sophisticated. And they've demonstrated that whatever the U.S. has cannot stop Russian missiles, but the Russian system can absolutely shoot down a whole host of things, including stealth aircraft. So... But, you know, when you start adding all of this together and uh, again with uh, the uh, invasion of the, the Russian troops from the north when they went in and started surrounding Kiev, um, they, this has not been a conventional military invasion by Russia. And what I mean by conventional military invasion is you just go in and destroy everything in your path. You blow up bridges, you blow up railroad centers, you blow up power plants, you cut off the power. You eliminate the Internet. Russians have done exactly the opposite. They've kept the power on. They've uh, kept the Internet up uh, in most places. And so when you've got that, then you've got to wonder, why aren't you seeing the social media posts that would reflect the valiant fight by the Ukrainian forces? You know, the, 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 the Internet is almost virtually silent on that front. And some other fronts so, as well, but we, we've seen heroic Ukrainian grandmothers uh, allegedly blowing up Russian tanks, and, and we've seen all of the you – know, they're handing out weapons like candy to people who aren't trained on them. That doesn't right. really, though, suggest that they've got a, a very good military position, does it? No, no. I, it's just just handing somebody a firearm, because I'm a certified firearms instructor, uh, 
all that all it means is they're likely to, to kill themselves or kill somebody they don't intend to uh, because they they don't know how to use it and even being able to know how to fire uh, a rifle in this case okay how do you use it from a tactical standpoint and uh, do they even understand the concepts of shooting from cover vice shooting from concealment do they understand how to integrate with a with a unit of people with rifles, a fire team, in order to lay down effective fire on a particular target? Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, this. Uh, there's a reason that when people go through boot camp, that it's a, it's a 10, 12-week process, because it takes time to start getting in, just the basic skills down. And then once you have those basic skills, then you move on to more advanced training. Like, you know, in the U.S. is called Advanced Infantry Training, AIT. So this is, um, you know, we've got to, um, we just got to recognize that there are some fundamental things missing in the Ukrainian military response. And then on top of that, we've seen the Russians with their new hypersonic missiles launching precision strikes on Ukrainian bases that were, had NATO personnel on them. And they've killed, uh, you know, NATO's been very uh, keen to keep quiet how many actually NATO military advisors have been killed in these strikes. So that narrative of um, Ukraine is winning and, you know, Ru- Russia's losing, they only have uh, another week or two and so on and so forth, seems like maybe uh, that finally wore out. And with the uh, Bucha false flag, or at least the apparent false flag in Bucha, one of the purposes of that may have been to bring on the new narrative, which is that the evil Russians, who it turns out are not losing after all, at least not as abjectly as we had been telling you, are now just uh, frustrated and, and slaughtering civilians kind of randomly and for no military purpose. But that narrative doesn't really make much sense either. Right. Now, that's the, that's actually the only thing that the NATO and Ukraine are doing well is waging an information warfare. These the the uh, the, the Russians didn't uh, kill civilians at Bucha, at least directly. There may have been some that were killed through artillery strikes that were unintended. But for the West to start moralizing about Russia killing civilians, uh, when you look at what the U.S. did to Germany during World War Two or to Japan, and bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki with nuclear weapons. You know, we, kill, we killed far more civilians than we killed military personnel. But we were willing to accept that as the cost of war. So it's just, you know, the hypocrisy on this just reeks. Uh, the bombing of Dresden, you know, the firebombing there probably had killed as many as were killed in the nuclear, in the uh, nuclear blast at Hiroshima. So, uh, this, uh, this effort to blame Russia for what was really done by Ukrainian nationalist forces, because Russia was Russia pulled out on the 30th. The mayor of uh, Bucha was out celebrating the liberation on the 31st. Not one word about, oh, my God, we've had these people killed. At the same time, you didn't see on social media <coughs> grieving mothers, fathers, spouses, siblings, uh, grieving about um, this this husband, this father, this brother was taken out by the Russians and shot and killed, and oh, we got to find his body. None of that. It's not until April second, so now three days later, that all of a sudden these bodies are discovered 
And oh my God, the Russians were executing him. Except in, in their haste to film these bodies, they, did, they forgot to point out that many of the bodies were surrounded by uh, Russian meals ready to eat, food packages. So they were asked to believe that the Russians, in the one hand, would hand out food packages and then tie their hands behind them and shoot them. Right. It's just, it's insanity. Yeah. And a lot of the victims seem to have had the white uh, armbands on, indicating yeah. more of a pro-Russian orientation, suggesting that they may have been executed by the Ukrainian forces after they took uh, right. Buka back. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but still, uh, none of this uh, shows up in, in the mainstream media. It's it's kind of odd. Back in the Vietnam days, I remember there were some you know, sort of off-script reports that managed to make it into the mainstream. And, you know, the uh, My Lai massacre was reported on uh, by Seymour Hersh, and there were right. other incidents like that. But t- today it seems that somehow they've gotten the media totally under control. How, how have they done it? Is it like, is Operation Mockingbird gone into overdrive? or you know, How do they get yeah, that just, unanimity? It's just, it's just lazy. Number one, it's the consolidation of the media with a few corporations. And you've got lazy, fearful reporters who don't want to lose their job and they're willing to go along with whatever the popular meme is. You know, it's very much like what the Soviet system once was. Um, it is, it really is of a genuine form of fascism where the government now in concert with these co- large corporations is able to sort of uh, cre- create a, a, a narrative and a truth that is not actually in touch with reality <clears throat> so yeah that it's uh it's strange though that it's uh it's gotten so much worse uh you know over over time uh i i kind of thought that maybe you know i, I noticed that prior to 9-11 it seemed that uh, there was a lot more questioning at least in the academy which is where i was hanging out mostly that uh, you know most of the professors that i talked to all kind of accepted that the JFK assassination had been some kind of coup d'etat, most likely. That was just kind of par for the course. People could talk about that openly in faculty lounges and in their courses. And 9-11 happened. And then I ended up getting railroaded for uh, talking skeptically about 9-11 at the University of Wisconsin in 2006. And that, to me, you know, was, was kind of surprising because, you know, I'd spent my whole academic life in an environment where kind of everybody knew that the Kennedy assassination was a coup d'etat and people kind of were, you know, the orientation was to be, you know, to be a critic of, of the official system. And there was a lot of left wing, you know, harsh criticism of the state of affairs and so on and so forth. Then post nine 11, it seemed like somehow things changed. And if you were, you know, raising these questions, suddenly, you know, you were outside uh, any kind of, you know, acceptable discourse. You're a conspiracy theorist and, and you'd be forced out. Like I was forced out of the American university system for talking about that. So uh, did you, do you think some things changed after, after 9-11 or um, maybe this, is that just my experience? No, I, I think there, there, um, 9-11 became the justification for imposing uh, unconstitutional limits on both speech and you know we we could justify we could justify taking people to Guantanamo and torturing them because it was for a good cause 
even though it was a complete violation of the Constitution. And it was a complete violation of the laws of war. So, uh, and the media went along with it because, you know, there was money to be made with it from taking that, that approach, that attitude. Um, it's, it's really, you know, and now we're, now we're in a situation where, um, we, we've seen, uh, actual political prisoners being held, uh, in, in DC jails. And those, you know, nobody, very, very, very few raise any complaints or, uh, you, you know, challenges to that. In fact, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, ironic reality is we've got more political prisoners in the United States than Russia, than this, the supposedly terrible Vladimir Putin is holding. Yeah, that's pretty ironic, isn't it? It's, it's also ironic that now it's the left side of the political spectrum that seems to be the most rabidly pro-war and anti-civil liberties, which is the exact opposite of what I remember from my younger days back during the Cold War. How did that happen? Yeah. No, it's it's all it's all about the money. Yeah, follow the money. Well, yeah. So yeah, speaking speaking of that and the uh, the uh, the so called January sixth insurrection and so on, uh, <laughs> which led to even more, you know, crackdown on free speech. I, I actually got a strike on my YouTube channel, second strike, and fortunately, I, I just stopped posting for long enough to not lose the entire channel. I got the strike because one of my guests opined that the uh, most recent presidential election may not have been correctly tabulated. So now they actually have a rule explicitly stated at YouTube that you're not allowed to cast any doubt on the authenticity uh, of the results of any American presidential election, which means we can't talk about Gore Vidal's novel 1876, about Rutherford B. Hayes uh, stealing the election from Tilden anymore. We can't talk yeah. about the, the 2000 you know, Gore Bush versus Bush hanging Chad situation, that, or, the 2000, or the 2004 John Kerry apparently having his victory stolen by massive computer fraud directed by Karl Rove. Uh, by way of, of his, uh, his vote theft guru, uh, who was then died in a plane crash right before he was supposed to testify against Roe, and on and on and on. So, so you can't question election results anymore, or you're not allowed to talk. That's pretty strange. Um, what, what, what's your take yeah. on, on that controversy? Yeah, no, it's just, I mean, it's, it's indicative of what's become an authoritarian society and people, you know, Part of it is just the flat-out ignorance of the American people. Or the the education system is now really more for indoctrination on social memes as opposed to actual hard education with uh, the hard sciences and uh, and history and you know, an objective, uh, you know, firm understanding of history. It's just it, it becomes just an ideological echo chamber. So, um, you know, the, just the inability to, you know, we, we ought to be able to discuss and debate things without being forced to, to admit that it's one, there's only one way. Of course, and that said, we are faced with this other irony of we're told that it's all about science, and yet the complete unscientific acceptance of transgenderism as if it's, you know, the notion that there are 52 genders 
I mean, it's just a complete violation of biology. I, I, I think that one of the causes for this is as the, the population in the United States has become more urban, less rural, you've got fewer and fewer people that grew up on a farm or around a farm. And I tell you, when you're on a farm, there's no such thing as a transgender pig or a transgender cow or a transgender bull. I, this is you're dealing you're dealing constantly with male and female sexual issues with animals, and there there is no in between, no gray area. Um, and yet we are biological mammals, and we try to pretend that uh, despite being mammals, that uh, we can reinvent our own reality just because we say so. Yeah. That, when, yeah. Once, once that becomes the foundation of your society, good Lord, you can make anything up and then force people to accept it. Yeah, there's a, a strange contradiction between the, the trust the science rhetoric and and then this uh, postmodernist idea that it's all just being made up, that there is no hard basis to reality. And it seems like they're the the authorities or the 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 people whoever it is that's uh keeping watch over the the sheep in in their ideological pens is having those two contradictory thoughts in mind all the time at the same time that is this there's uh first trust the science science is what we tell you do what we tell you and at the same time oh actually science uh, is meaningless because it's all just being made up anyway uh which is of course the postmodern philosophy and and somehow they're they're using both at the same time how about that culture war dimension of the conflict with russia uh russia has uh, famously passed a, a, a horrible homophobic law against uh, propagandizing children for homosexuality. And here in the United States, apparently you can do that, but you have to wait till they're in third grade, at least in Florida. And you can you can do it in kindergarten or nursery school everywhere else. Uh, and so there's a culture clash on that apparently here. Um, and I, I'm wondering, you know, how how is it that Russia, which used to be the ideologically kind of crazed, uh, reality-denying side of the Cold War has become the more uh, sort of normal, natural, and reality-accepting side of this new uh, war, while the West has gone bananas. Yeah, this, well, remember, Russia used to be, the Soviet Union were godless communists. They did not believe in God. They believed the state was God. Well, Vladimir Putin became, he converted to Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, about 30 years ago. And uh, people try to discount that as being real, but it actually is real. And as a result, uh, he sees himself as well as trying to uphold Christian values and preserving Christian society and preserving the family. Uh uh, it, the real irony for me, another irony out of this with the invasion of Ukraine, you could make the case that Vladimir Putin is has embarked on an effort to try to save Western civilization from itself. Because throughout the West, which is really founded on uh, Christianity and Judaism, there has been the efforts to erase that religious foundation turn it into a secular society, and in the process of turning it into a secular society, to to eliminate and erase all vestiges of, uh, of uh, religion and replace it with the state being the god. Well, there we are. We're back to what the Soviets once were. 
People don't even they don't even see it or comprehend it. There you go. And and so, you know, you as you said, you worked in the CIA, the State Department, Special Forces. Are uh, your former colleagues in in those areas uh, concerned about this as well? And uh, if if so, is there any hope? Like I, I actually, you know, I, I talked with Gordon Duff, who's been through exactly these these same <laughs> worlds that you were you've been through. About well, why, why didn't you guys who knew the score about nine eleven, like Gordon and a lot of other military folks, knew right away that there's this official story of passenger planes flying all over the country for hours, uh, you know, after being obviously hijacked and you know turning around halfway across the country and you know flying a beeline to the Pentagon without being seen on any radars whatsoever, military or civilian, because they turned off their transponder. And then a guy who couldn't even fly a Cessna, you know, take, taking this corkscrew dive into the Pentagon, coming in at clipping the grass and hitting the side far away from the top brass where it had just been reinforced and all of this stuff, you know, the obvious demolitions of the three towers. Indeed, every WTC prefix building was blown up with explosives and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Uh, a whole lot of folks in the military intelligence communities obviously didn't believe any of that nonsense from the get-go. I said, well, Gordon, why didn't you guys push back against this? And he said it would have meant civil war. So I imagine that today, uh, the same kind of people, the basically, you know, reality, uh, based, uh, patriotic element of the military and intelligence communities, uh, maybe even the State Department, I don't know, would be as concerned as you are about these things. And one would think that some of them might imagine that there's something that could be done about it. Uh, uh what, what's your take on the general uh, that that the possibility that that people in those communities could at some point stand up and try to restore some sanity to the situation. No, that's not going to happen. These are uh, these are people who don't want to rock the boat. They want to get promoted. They want to continue to make money and have a job. So they're they're economic hostages. So the 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 only thing that will <clears throat> force. Uh, America to come to grips with reality is going to be an enormous tragedy and, and chaos. Unfortunately, um, this uh, the, the likelihood of facing a, a massive inflationary spike over the coming year is uh, is really grown. And once once that happens, you're going to see the virtual destruction of the middle class. And once that, once you get the destruction of the middle class, then the foundation of this country is, is, is completely at risk. Um, so this, you know, unfortunately, um, sometimes you have to suffer a tragedy to, uh, really get the impetus or the will to make the fundamental changes that need to take place. And do you think those changes could happen through the normal political system? I, I know. F- I, I, no, not no. at all. So, so like if somebody like Douglas McGregor were, you know, nominated uh, by acclamation to run for president, uh, that that's still not going to work. No, no, because you know, again, you have have a you have an entrenched bureaucracy, and the, the very foundations of that bureaucracy have got to be attacked. And how, how, how does that happen? Uh, when the country runs out of money, when the government is destroyed, unfortunately, uh, I think um, there, there's, you know, we're, 
we're, we're up against some real challenging times. It is the, there's no way to have the uh, revolutionary change without a revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's the reality. That's our history. You, you go back and look at the history of the formation, the creation of the United States of America. It was a British colony and the colony rebelled and refused to accept the existing social order. And there was as much animus between friends and families then as they exist now, uh, right. you know, more so back then. So it's, you know, this, it just reflects a poor understanding of history. Uh, when, when you get institutions that no longer are, uh, responsive or key or willing to protect the rights of citizens, then you, you must take action to make sure that that is corrected. You hope it can be self-correcting, but the self-correcting rarely works. So have you uh, heard about the fourth turning theory of the sociologist, Strauss and Howe, who've talked about how there's this uncanny sort of 80-year cycle in American history, and each one being a four-generational cycle of 80 years starting with the revolution around uh, 1780, the Civil War around 1860, uh, World War II around 1940. And now here we are a little few years after 2020 and going into the same kind of thing. As you said, that the uh, first 1776 revolution was in some sense a civil war with people uh, turning on their neighbors, uh, horrific violence within communities between the the, uh, British sympathizers and the rebels. And likewise, the Civil War uh, was, was the same kind of thing. With World War II, we didn't experience so much domestic chaos, although there was a very sharp domestic divide between the side that didn't want to go into the war and then those who managed to orchestrate the U.S. Uh, into, into going into the war through the Pearl Harbor eight-point plan and things like that. And now here we are in 2020 with a sharp divide with kind of the uh, fanatical Yankees on one side, and I, I would say the fanatical Yankee side would have been the pro-revolution side in 1776, the uh, North um, in, in, in 1860, and the uh, FDR plus the uh, Jewish interest side that pushed us into the war in 1940. And today the Yankee side would be the uh, wokesters and the current establishment. And uh, so far in each of the three cases, the Yankee side won. Um, do you think that this, uh, if, if this is the case, uh, that we're you know, re- repeating this kind of pattern, you think the Yankees might finally be uh, defeated uh, if they're the ones who are in charge as the nation crumbles? Well, uh, you know, this, uh, I disagree a little bit with, uh, you know, that, the, his, the history on that. Because if you go back to the American Revolution, um, it was, there was no, it really was sort of the, and there was an establishment element, but those, that establishment element literally put everything at risk. They, they were not, uh, growing more prosperous out of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, several of the individuals who signed on to the Declaration of Independence lost their lives and lost their property. Um, and, you know, the families were split and divided. So, um, the, uh, you know, what, what changed for the United States, you know, World War, the reality is World War II would not have happened were it not for World War One, And World War One was a completely uh, useless, unjustified 
conflict, but it certainly killed, you know, millions, and yet and, and create sowed the seeds for for World War Two. Um, this, um, you know, I think um, the, the 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 wealthy, the elite in this country that are helping uh, push these lies right now. Um, there comes a time where the accountability catches up. You can, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Uh, if they're, if they're rioting outside your house and preparing to burn your house down, all the money in the world doesn't necessarily help you unless you could hire an army. And do you think that that uh, kind of collapse situation, uh, that people like Dmitry Orlov have predicted for the U S uh, could come about sooner rather than later, given the possible uh, collapse of the uh, global trade system uh, after this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Well, it's not, I wouldn't use the term collapse. I think, you know, collapse conjures up an image where everything stops working. And we saw that even during World War II, with enormous military battles around the world, uh, no, there's there's still uh, people still have needs and hungers and wants and will trade valuables to satisfy those. So in, inevitably, what these kinds of situations create is an opportunity where criminal organizations exploit it. Black markets arise, and there's still the, the commerce goes on. So it's not so much a collapse as a redirection of income and wealth. Um, but it uh, does make it more difficult for a government to actually provide for the common welfare of its citizens. Mm-hmm. And how, so, how soon is that likely to come? Government, yeah, well, well, I think, I think we're on the threshold of it. I would, I, I think, uh, 2003 is going to be a very, very difficult year economically in the United States. In 2023. I think we will. Yeah, 2023. We'll see double digit inflation at least. Um, and you'll start seeing some, you know, financial collapses on order of what we saw in 2008. And, uh, only, only this time we won't have control of the international financial system. And then, and, and what will, What's the effect of that, especially if, if international trade is declining, as it seems to be? Well, you got to There will all there will be a demand for certain items. The, the one of the sad things about America, compared to where we were in World War Two on the, the beginnings of World War Two, we had an enormous manufacturing capability. We could produce everything here. We didn't have to rely upon foreign imports in order to make our to build ships and to build planes now we do um so uh and and the real the sharp contrast to that is russia russia does not need anything you know they they are largely a self-sufficient economy so they don't have to uh you know they're they're the damage to them from these sanctions is uh, not nearly as great as the West was hoping. And if anything, it's reinforced for the Russians the need to be independent and not be dependent on the United States. Mm-hmm. And so 
if you're right, in 2023 will be uh, a year of, of sharp economic downturn. What does that bode for the 2024 presidential elections? Uh, it's going to be a lot of pandering about how they're going to fix the uh, economy. Um, and if, if the suffering is great, there's always the tendency with great suffering to look for the, quote, strong man to come in and save the day. Well, that's no. not going to be Biden or Harris. Uh, and No, no. So uh, it, it will not be. Um, I, I don't see a whole lot of candidates out there. <laughs> frankly. Yeah, no, I think, uh, again, I think at this point uh, we're likely to see the return of Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. With for better or worse, I mean, I, I think Trump has some serious flaws and weaknesses. Even though the the mega movement that he rode uh, definitely has uh, uh, some some good points in its agenda, um, the return of Trump though would be ferociously opposed by the current establishment, and one could almost imagine a civil war scenario. I mean, look as you said, look at how they're treating these political prisoners in the D.C. jail. I mean, they're really you know they're flogging the uh, pro-Trump forces and flogging Trump uh, unmercifully at every opportunity. If if these folks see Trump heading back into the White House, you know, being the man on the horse, I mean, they're going to probably, like, shoot his horse out from under him somehow, aren't they? Yeah, they're going to, well, they're going to try. Uh, but this is, uh, you know, Trump is, he's like one of those zombies from Night of the Living Dead. He keeps coming back at him. But, you know, he, un- he understood, he didn't un- appreciate the uh, depth of corruption in um, the um, Washington D.C. bureaucracy—he just did see it. Well, he appointed some of you know swamp creatures to half of the cabinet posts. Yeah, he was—he uh, got an education. I, I don't think he'll repeat the same mistakes twice. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, he—you know. To me, the kind of the worst swap creature in his cabinet was Kushner, and uh, that's his son-in-law. Can he really break with that crowd? Well, uh, I don't know. I do not know. He uh, he probably should, but you know, again, you never know. Yeah, what, what I would be concerned about there would be uh, the tendency of you know the scapegoating to always you know find a somebody to blame for problems. We see this you know, right now. Of course, Russia is being scapegoated for everything. Trump was scapegoated for everything. But uh, even if, if Trump comes back, then the Trump side could also, you know, get, uh, you know, be, become a kind of a, a witch hunting kind of brigade that conceivably could sort of continue this tendency that we've already seen towards uh, shutting down the opposition in unfair ways. So we could, you know, theoretically, we could move from the current situation where the anti-Trump side is shutting down free speech on the internet in these really maddening ways, but, you know, not really brutal, straightforward ways to Trump or someone like him, uh, just shutting down free speech brutally the way it's been done in so many places and, and so many times. Is that something that would concern you? Yeah. Yeah. No, it does. Uh, we're, we're entering an unknown and, and people, I don't think they've, they have not thought this through carefully, uh, particularly the way the, di- the international dynamics are going to change. Uh, the United States has gotten away over the last, you know, 
50, 60 years of being being able to go out and bully other countries and get away with it. Uh, I think that that time has now come to an end. So if we we're going to try to organize with our friends and neighbors, you know, get ready for this this uh, next American revolution so you know, we can try to contribute to it going in the most productive, you know, least, uh, you know, terrible way that we can. Uh, where would we start? Uh, I would start by making sure that your own situation is economically stable, that you've got enough food, at least a month's supply of food. And I'm not a uh, Larry, sorry, you're breaking up again pretty bad I'm right now. I'm just saying from a practical oh, standpoint, at least a month's supply of food and uh, yeah. able to defend your family. That's the talk. Uh, I would just be able to take care of, be able to defend and feed your own family first. Take care of yourselves first. Uh, because when you're self-seeking, then that actually creates more of a foundation. That creates more of a foundation for dealing with um, uh, your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And if, if things get bad, uh, the people who aren't able to take care of themselves will be the ones probably you know, driven to the uh, most desperate and sometimes the worst kinds of behavior. Uh, and we don't want to contribute to that. It also strikes me as a good idea to maybe get to know your neighbors a little bit, especially the ones who are aware of these things. Yes, yes. I'm fortunate in that regard. I live in a great neighborhood with great neighbors. Cool. Yeah, I've got, I've got uh, good neighbors, too. Uh, probably should get to know a couple of them a little better, though. Uh, some interesting folks around here that I probably should go knock on their door. Well, Larry, we pretty much uh, hit the end of the show. I appreciate your excellent work at the Son of the New American Revolution blog. That's sonar21.com. And I do look forward to checking in with you down the line. I think your your analysis is spot on in most respects. Well, we'll see. (laughs) Okay. I guess we will. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye.
But I can see